So Jonah chapter 4, um, we're going to look at the whole chapter today. We'll jump right into things uh, this morning. As we kicked off this series, we looked at how all most of us know about Jonah is that he's the prophet who survived for three days in the belly of a fish. And, and this is unfortunate because when you look at the full narrative of Jonah's life, this is really just a footnote. Um, as we've seen week in and week out over the last six weeks, the book of Jonah is not primarily a story about a man and a fish. It is primarily a story about God and his mercy. Um, sometimes as followers of Jesus, as we read the Bible, we can be so guilty of fixating on the wrong details at the expense of missing the most important things. That was G. Campbell Morgan who said of the book of Jonah, <clears throat> men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. So here's the recap that we've seen up to this point in time. Uh, chapter one, the Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Uh, any of your, but show of hands here, any of your kids have the Jesus Storybook Bible at home? Uh, I think uh, the story of Jonah in the Jesus Storybook Bible is my favorite. Um, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, but it says he goes the opposite direction. When it comes time to get a ticket to Tarshish, he says, I'll take one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And he goes the opposite direction. And I think that pretty adequately expresses Jonah's actions in this moment. He goes the opposite direction. So the Lord sends a storm that threatens the lives of everybody on board. Jonah realizes it's his fault, so he tells the sailors, hey, just throw me overboard. And so as he's sinking to the depths of the sea, he's at the brink of death, the Lord miraculously appoints and sends a great fish that swallows Jonah. And after three days in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally comes to his senses. He repents of his sin, he submits to the will of God, and then the fish spits him out on the dry land. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. We see in chapter three with a very simple message. The original Hebrew, it was only five words. And this is the message as it reads in Jonah three, yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish. He came to the people with a warning of judgment. So uh, the Ninevites, we've seen the last couple of weeks, they realize their sin before the Lord. They come to him in fasting and repentance. And the end of chapter three, we saw last week that the Lord re relented of his disaster. So you know, the revival comes to the Ninevites, and, and this feels like a really great place to end the story, right? Like nice little bow here at the end. You know, Jonah resisted, but then he obeys. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches judgment. Everybody gets saved. End of story, right? It's probably why the Lord didn't let me write this book. Because what we see at the end of Jonah is that our spiritual growth as, as followers of Jesus, if it were a chart, you know, our progress is not always up and to the right, what we see through the story of Jonah is that sometimes our progress is one step forward and then three steps backwards. And we see the danger of what happens when sinful anger is allowed to reign in our lives. In spite of the mercy God had shown Jonah, Jonah resented God's mercy toward the Ninevites. So the conclusion of Jonah in chapter four, it offers us both a comforting hope and a sobering warning. Here's the hope we find in Jonah. The hope is that the Lord has shown great mercy to us. We, we will see again this morning the Lord's mercy on Jonah. Once again, in spite of his rebellion, the Lord shows him mercy and the Lord has shown us mercy. But here's the warning. Sinful anger, in spite of that mercy, can prevent us from showing that mercy to others. It's entirely possible if we leave our sin unchecked to find ourselves in a posture where we are eager to receive God's mercy for ourselves in our own lives, but then withhold that very same mercy when it comes to the lives of our enemies. So the Lord has shown mercy to us, but if we're not careful, sinful anger will prevent us from showing that mercy to others. So Jonah 4, uh, let's read together beginning in verses 1 and 2. 
End of chapter three, they turn from their sin. It says the Lord relented of the disaster that he would do to them. But here's Jonah's response, verse one. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. So from Jonah's life, we see three signs that we are sinfully angry. Three signs we're sinfully angry. Here's the first. We'll openly question the sovereignty of God when he acts against our preference and will. We openly question the sovereignty of God when he acts against our preference and will. Chapter three ends by showing us that when the Ninevites repented of their sins, the Lord relented from the disaster that he planned. But not only does Jonah not rejoice that they've been saved, it says that this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. So this kind of begs the question, like what is Jonah so angry about? I mean, had he not done exactly what God called him to do? God called him to go to Nineveh. He gave them the message. He preached the message. The people turned from their sins. Why is Jonah so angry in this moment? What's the problem? But well, this is what we see from chapter four. The answer to that question is yes, Jonah had done everything God called him to do. So the problem then isn't that Jonah didn't do what God wanted. The problem is God did not do what Jonah wanted. He came to the people preaching yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish, but it didn't happen. And this is where we see Jonah's great disdain for the Ninevites. I mentioned this a couple of weeks back. You know, for, for many of us, uh, mentioning God's coming judgment is extremely difficult. I mean, to the point that, that in many modern contexts, we just edit all of this out of our gospel presentation. There will be no mention of judgment. There will be no mention of justice. There will be no mention of wrath. No mention of these things whatsoever because they make us uncomfortable, but you could make the argument that for Jonah, preaching the message of judgment was the easy part because he wanted nothing more than to see the Ninevites destroyed. Jonah was happy to be the angry guy on the street corner with the bullhorn. You're all going down. Like he was eager to do this. He, he was eager to see the Ninevites destroyed. He had great disdain in his heart for these people. So here he is not rejoicing over their salvation, but lamenting. I mean, look at what he says here in verse two. It says, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, this is pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing. And it's a warning for us of what sinful anger will lead us to do. God's actions have made Jonah so angry that he's now trying to go back and justify his original disobedience. See, I knew this was gonna happen. I, I knew that this, this was gonna happen. Like, like, this is why I jumped on that boat. This is why I went the opposite direction. Why? Because I knew you're just gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These people that you should wipe off the face of the planet, I knew that you were gonna do this. And so Jonah's now trying to justify his original disobedience. That's why I hopped that boat and tried to go the opposite direction. And he feels so justified in this. And this is the trap that we can all fall ourselves falling into. It's attempting to justify sin when God doesn't do exactly what we want. 
I go back about uh, 12 years when Emily and I were, were uh, we were engaged about this time 12 years ago and uh, preparing to get married a few months later. And um, we were planning to live in Charlotte. And up to this point in time, um, I had about five years of church staff experience from different internships and part-time positions. And uh, I had an undergraduate degree in, in pastoral ministry and I was on the verge of wrapping up my master's. And so in my mind, it was now time to take like that next step up on the ladder uh, of a church staff position. And, and that's what I was waiting for. When we first moved to Charlotte, um, I, I was knocking on some doors, but none of them were opening. And we were getting married. I had to have a job because um, you got to pay bills, right? And, and so I uh, found a job. It was a full-time retail management position over, over a stock room. And so I just thought, hey, this is you know, just short, temporary season, a month or two till something opens up. Uh, and that this will just kind of pay the bills in the meantime. Well, well you know, a few months go by, two months, three months, six months, and, and yet nothing has opened up. And, and I'm, I'm in this job that in my mind, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that I want to do. Can't stand it. I'm overseeing, you know, a stock room at, at four o'clock in the morning. Got to wake up at 3 a.m. most days. And I'm an early morning person, but that, that's insanity, right? Like I don't want to get up that early in the morning. And, and, and so I, I'm just finding myself in this position where I'm so frustrated with the Lord. Well, um, at the time, the church that we were attending um, had a volunteer position, a significant volunteer position, but it was just volunteer that, that opened up and they approached me and asked if I was interested in filling. Uh, my background before church planting was in uh, student ministry and, and I was a worship leader and this was gonna be an opportunity to do both, but it was an unpaid volunteer position. And, and if I'm being honest with you, uh, I said no. And the reason why I said no is because I felt like at this point, volunteer is beneath me. Like I've, I've had the staff position. I got a couple degrees to my name now. Why, why don't these people see my worth? Why do these people don't see my value? Lord, you are wasting me in this stock room. And, and I remember just kind of being in, in the back of this stock room by myself for a few minutes very early, you know, about like 4.15 in the morning one day, and, and, and I was letting my gripe be known to the Lord. And, and, and in that moment, the Lord broke me. Because what the Lord revealed to me in that moment is that while I was heavy on experience, I was light on obedience. I, I was doing nothing in the name of not getting to do what I wanted to do and justifying it as obedience. And instead, what the Lord was doing is he was giving me an opportunity. Now, so, so I finally, I, I had to humble myself, take this opportunity, and then guess what? It actually became a full-time position a few months later. And so the Lord knew, knew what it was. It was my own stubbornness that kept me locked, probably in this position, probably longer than I would have had to been, until I was finally willing to humble myself and, and take the open door that the Lord had placed before me. And church, this is what we have to be on guard against. We are not justified in sin and disobedience just because we don't get our way. Disagreement with God does not just justify disobedience against God. And listen, it's not that we can never be angry, but there is a major difference we see through Scripture between righteous anger and sinful anger. We see that Jonah is exceedingly angry over the Lord's mercy that he's showing to Nineveh. And this is leading him to a place of sinful anger. So, so what is the difference? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He, he, he exhorts us, be angry and do not sin. So we, we can infer here that there, there, is, that there are occasions when it's right to be angry. It's good to be angry. And yet Paul warns us against being sinful in our anger. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We see this exemplified in the life of Christ himself. He turns over the tables of religious corruption. So we understand not all anger is wrong. And, and we've seen it at length over the last several weeks that there's plenty in our own world, in our immediate culture, that it is good to be angry about. 
We've seen this in the last month alone. So I just remind us, church, it is good to be angry about the destruction of innocent life in the womb. It is good to be angry about racially motivated shootings. It is good, as we've seen over the last week, to be angry about religious leaders who abuse their power to cover up sexual abuse. It's good to be angry about these things. It is good to be angry about school shootings and the destruction of innocent life. So, so again, and, and for good measure, I'm, I'm just going to press into this one more time. You and I are living in a moment where neither political extreme is equipped to deal with this because neither side will be fully honest about their own sin. This is going to have to be a place where the church regains its prophetic calling. Friends, we have to stop expecting politicians to do what God has called us to do. It is given to the church to speak truth to the world. It is given to the church to uphold the light and shine the light of the gospel in the midst of a dark and broken world. And neither extreme is capable of handling this moment. It's now or never for us. And the question that we've been asking the last few weeks is what is our response going to be? When God calls us, will our response be Jonah's first response, but Jonah, or will it be his second response, so Jonah, in obedience to the word of the Lord? Knowing the heart of God means learning to not only love what God loves, but learning to hate what he hates. Proverbs 19.3 reminds us, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't this what we do? Like we sin, and then we start dealing with the natural consequences of our sin, and then who do we blame? We blame God. Why, Lord? For, for things that we got ourselves into. Knowing the heart of God means not just loving what he loves, it means hating what he hates. So, so follow here, like we're not guilty of sinful anger when we hate what God hates. We're guilty of sinful anger when we hate what God loves. And the picture we see in Jonah chapter 4 is what our God loves is to display his mercy. He loves to display mercy, but this infuriates Jonah, verses 2 through 4. It says again, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. A little dramatic here from Jonah. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Second sign that we're sinfully angry. We bitterly resent the character of God and despise the gift of life with him. This is a sign of sinful anger. It is bitter resentment of God's character and despising the gift of life with him. Jonah is so angry with the Lord. This is amazing. He's so angry that he actually tries to use the Lord's own character against him to build his case. Like, listen to Jonah in this moment. He's like, here you go again, Lord. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, not, not destroying people and wiping them off the face of the earth. In this moment, Jonah is every older sibling with younger siblings who's mad that their younger siblings never get in trouble, right? <laughs> like you never get in trouble for this. You never ground her for this. You never get onto him for this. It's only me. Like Jonah is, is that kid in this moment. Like he knew exactly who the Lord was. This is how the Lord reveals himself to the people of Israel in Exodus 34. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. This is how God chooses, like default posture to reveal himself to his people. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in this passage, we see a picture of God's mercy and we see a picture of God's wrath. But, but, But look at the difference between the two. To how many generations does his wrath extend? Three or four. To how many generations does his mercy extend? To thousands. He's merciful and he's gracious. At the same time, similar time as the prophet Jonah were the words of the prophet Joel. He implores the people, return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is amazing, the irony that's here. Jonah's problem isn't that he didn't know who God was. Jonah's problem is that he did know who God was. Richard Phillips comments on this passage. He says, unlike most people who sin in ignorance of what God is really like, Jonah's heart rebels precisely because he knows the truth about God and because the truth conflicts with his own heart's desires. I mean, j- just to put it kindly, Jonah, the guy is a hot mess. I mean, he, he is, in this passage, he is drama to the max. Like, here's the Lord. Like, Jonah, you mad, bro? Yes. How mad? Mad enough to die? Just kill me. I mean, just, just absolute drama, like it, it, just this, this picture of his immaturity in, in this moment. And listen, church, this is a dangerous place to, to find ourselves in. He so despises the character of God that he essentially says, death is better than life with you. Jonah is saying to the Lord in this moment, if this is what obedience is going to get me, then I'd rather you just kill me now. If it's going to lead me to this place. And this is important for us to see because I think for some of us, if we're willing to be honest We're sometimes so embarrassed by God's character and his actions to the point that we think life would be easier if we just weren't Christians. Like, we're just sometimes embarrassed by the character of God. I think we're just being honest. Like, we read things in Scripture, and there's just parts of the Bible we'd prefer people not know about. Like, we've seen some of this over the last few weeks. You know, we, we just think, man, my life would be so much easier. My witness would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with judgment and wrath and repentance and hell, would it not just be easier to to not talk about these things and just walk away from these things? We're in a a, a culture that claims tolerance. It seems to be tolerant of everything but Christianity. Like that's what we're living in, a a very intolerant culture. And here we are with the message saying, hey, all these other religious systems, wrong. Jesus, only hope of salvation exclusive path of eternal life? Would it not be easier just to say, hey, yeah, all roads lead to the same place. We're good. I think sometimes we feel this. Again, we're, we're living in a moment in culture. We're getting biblical sexual ethics. God's design for men and women, both in the church and in the home. Like, like our culture doesn't just disagree with these things. It calls them dangerous. And, and so, so for many of us, I fear what happens is like, we just take a step back from all that. Like, we're, we're just kind of embarrassed of God's plan, just kind of embarrassed of God's actions, kind of embarrassed of God's character. And, and so what happens is some implicitly walk away from the faith by, by functionally pretending like these things aren't in the Bible. Like, there's whole movements of progressive Christianity right now that are, that are Thomas Jeffersoning the Bible, like just cutting out whole parts. Not there. Don't need to pay attention to that anymore. Or there's those who just explicitly walk away from the faith and say, forget it. Like, my life would be so much easier if I wouldn't do these things. And this is exactly where Satan wants us. Satan wants us so embarrassed by what we find in the Word to the point that we'll say, it's just a lot easier if I walk away. My life would be easier if I didn't have to obey Jesus. 
And Jonah so bitterly resents the character of God that he essentially says, I'd rather die than have life with you. And he doesn't let up. This is how he closes it out, verses 5 through 11. Very interesting ending to this book. It says, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, pay attention to that phrase, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonas that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Here he goes again. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? End of story. It's like an Inception type ending, right? You're like, what just happened? Like, <laughs> is, it, is it still spinning? Is he still dreaming? Like, what, what are we doing here? Interestingly enough, it's kind of a Bible trivia fun fact. Jonah is only one of two books in your Bible that ends with a question. And it's just like, what, what, what do we do with this? Well, what we see third in terms of, of sinful anger from the example of Jonah is uh, one sign of sinful anger third is that we eagerly receive the mercy of God while doubling down on merciless hate. Like glad to receive God's mercy in our own lives, but we are extremely stingy about his mercy being displayed in the lives of others. And the Lord uses a really interesting object lesson to close out uh, this book. So uh, Jonah, as it were, had had essentially uh, grabbed his lawn chair and had moved to the side of the hill. And he was hoping he was going to have a front row seat to the destruction of Nineveh. He eagerly wanted to see this happen. We're told that he made a booth, uh, which was basically a makeshift shelter of branches and leaves. And you know, ironically enough, part of the religious calendar in the Jewish culture included what was known as the Feast of Booths. And if uh, you're not familiar, what they would do is uh, temporarily dwell in these makeshift shelters. And a primary purpose for this feast was remembrance of the time when the Lord had shown them mercy by delivering them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And Jonah appears to have forgotten all of this building this booth in no way reminds him of God's mercy on his own people because he despises the fact that the Lord is showing mercy to the Ninevites. But this booth, as he makes it, apparently it's not enough to get out of the heat. So here's what the Lord does. In the same way that he had mercifully and miraculously appointed a great fish uh, that would save Jonah when he was at the depths of the sea and at the brink of death, once again, on the brink of death, he miraculously and mercifully appoints a large plant uh, to provide him the shade that his own dwelling couldn't provide. And pay attention to what has happened from verse 1 to verse 6. Verse 1, it says, The Lord showed mercy to Nineveh, and Jonah's response is he is exceedingly displeased. But in verse 6, it says the Lord showed mercy to Jonah, and Jonah is exceedingly glad. Glad when God shows mercy to him. Extremely, exceedingly displeased when he shows it to others. And this is the danger of sinful anger, is it will lead us to this place. It will lead us to, to this subtly sinful and disastrous place where we, in our heart of hearts, believe we really deserve salvation, but those other people, not so much. We have to be on guard against this. 
I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 32 to 35. Matthew 18, 32 to 35. And, and I want us to see this picture here because it's a powerful example of what we're looking at uh, from the words of Jesus. Matthew 18. So this passage uh, tells us the parable, what's known to us as the parable of the unforgiving servant. So there's a servant who owes a tremendous amount of debt. And uh, so he, he's not able to pay the debt. And so when his master comes to collect it, he pleads with his master that he could have more time to pay his debt. And so his master shows him mercy. He gives him more time. And so what he starts to do, this servant, is he goes out to other people who owed him money. And he comes across another servant who owed him money, and that man was unable to pay. But instead of showing him the mercy that his master had shown to them, uh, he has this servant thrown into prison. And here is the response of Jesus to the actions of this man in Matthew 18. We're going to, again, pick it up in verse 32, read down through verse 35. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. But pay attention to what's happening here, church. You and I, we are never more like Jesus than when we show mercy but we are never more less like Jesus than when we withhold mercy. And again, I, I want to be sensitive here because I recognize in a room this size, like, like there are most certainly, many of you, like you are carrying some really heavy things of terrible things other people have done to you. And, and so please don't hear me saying this morning that, that Jesus is saying, hey, you just need to kind of forgive, forget, suppress that, and move on. I mean, it, it may take you years of, of counseling and help to be able to, to process all of that before you can truly come to that place of total forgiveness from our heart. We do, as followers of Jesus, though, want to move towards this place. We want to move towards a place of, of forgiveness because you know, we have to remember that regardless of what we experience, regardless of what we experience, no one has caused any greater harm in their sin to us than we have caused in our sin against the Lord. We always want to be moving toward the posture of mercy and forgiveness because we're reminded that in spite of our sin, we have a heavenly father who delights to show us mercy. Jonah is displeased when the Lord shows mercy to Nineveh, but, but he's perfectly content when the Lord shows mercy to him. He sits under the shade of the plant, but then the Lord uh, sends this worm, it kills it, and then here goes Jonah again. Would you just kill me already? I can't have the destruction of the city. I can't have my giant ficus you gave me. I can't have anything. Just kill me. Like, 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 just take me out already. And so the Lord just comes to Jonah. He asks this very, very simple question. He says, Jonah, is it right for, for you to be angry about this plant? What's, what's Jonah respond? Yes, of course it is. Angry enough to die. Here's how the Lord responds. He says, if it's right for you to have pity on a plant, am I not right to have pity for people? 120,000 people living in the darkness. They don't even know they're right from their left. You can pity this plant. You didn't work for it. Like, like you didn't grow it. It was given to you. It came in a day. It was gone in a day. And yet you are showing more pity for this plant than you are for the people who could suffer. 
And this just reveals the, the depth and the magnitude of what's going on in the heart of Jonah. Jonah had greater pity for plants than he did for people. And so this book ends with a question. It ends the question that the Lord asks Jonah in, in this moment. Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? The, the book just ends right there in this question. And the question is then left for us as the readers to answer. So, so how do we answer this? We're left to answer the question on our own. Is it right for the Lord to display his mercy to enemies? Well, here's the benefit you and I have. Because we stand on the other side of the cross, we answer that question with a resounding yes. Yes, God desires to show mercy to his enemies. This is 2 Peter 3.9. Peter reminds us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, the Lord does not just desire to show mercy. He delights to show mercy even to the worst of his enemies. And unfortunately, I fear so many of us, like we've taken on the posture of Jonah. We not only have enemies that we despise, we are eager to see them be destroyed. And we would delight in their destruction. We so quickly forget that we too, apart from Jesus, we were enemies of God that we too were deserving of his just condemnation and judgment and justice and wrath against sin. And it is purely because God in his grace and his mercy that we were made alive together in Christ. One day we're rejoicing in the mercy of God in our lives and the next day we are wishing for the destruction of God in the lives of our enemies. And there's a disconnect here. And Mark Dever in a sermon on the book of Jonah offers a really comforting reminder that I think we need to hold on to today. He says, God has always been more committed to reaching the world than his own people have been. He's more committed to us than we were to ourselves. He's more committed to those who are far from Christ than most of us are willing to be committed. And church, I'm, I'm with you today. I recognize that this is so much easier said than done. Showing mercy to those whom we most hate. I've, I've had one of these moments in, in my own life over the last few weeks. Again, there's been so much that I feel like is good to, to be righteously enraged about, but there's an area that I, I found myself in sinful anger just a few weeks ago. So um, it was a few weeks back, just a couple days after the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion of Roe versus Wade when it came out. And you know, predictably, as, as when things like this happened, the online fury started to rage and I came across the Twitter page of a really uh, outspoken um, comedian who is a heavy advocate of, of abortion. I mean, I mean just, just unmitigated practice. And, and he tweeted out uh, one of the single most insulting, infuriating, wicked things I felt like I had ever read. And this is what he had to say. He said, here's why I know Christians don't really believe that life starts in the womb you'll almost never see them holding funerals when they have miscarriages. And as I'm reading this in my living room, I see across in the kitchen my wife, who's miscarried three times. And for over a decade, I have watched her grief, and I've watched her agony, and I've watched her suffering. And she has entered into that space with, with countless other women. That, that is maybe the most understated ministry that my wife has. And we have entered into this space with others, and we have watched the agony and the grief and the suffering they, they experience. In a comment like that, I'm like, this is only meant to be cruel. 
You only say that to intentionally inflict, willfully inflict harm to others. I promise you in that moment, what I was not feeling for him was any desire for mercy. Like I grew up in Boone. Like the, the, the language, the verbiage we use is, is, is taking people to the woodshed. Like I'm ready to lay hands on this guy and not in a holy way. Like I'm fantasizing that. Like, please say that in my presence. Like I'm 150 pounds, I will end you, right? Like that, like that is... Like, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm feeling in, in that moment. These, I, I kid you not, these were the very first words that came out of my mouth after I read this to Emily. I said, I like to believe that there is a special corner of hell that are, that's carved out for people like him. Like, in that moment, I wanted God's wrath to pour out on him. I wanted God's judgment. I mean, I was just seething with, with anger. And a few minutes later, I was standing on, on my back porch, just kind of put my phone down. And the Lord pricked my heart and convicted me because I realized in that moment, church, I had become Jonah. Hoping for the destruction of my enemies and not their salvation. Forgetting so quickly that, that the very, very mercy that God showed me, he desires to display in the lives of all people. I had become the angry prophet with no reminder of the merciful God. And we can so easily find ourselves here. And so, church, as we, we close this book this morning, I want to ask us a really simple question. And I hope this infuses you with hope today. I want to ask you a really simple question. How might your life change if you really believed, and I mean really believed, that the Lord really is merciful and gracious? That he really is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that he really is patient toward you, that he really doesn't wish that any would perish, that it really is his desire that all would reach repentance. And right now we are living in his mercy as he withholds his wrath. And, and he is giving us the time to turn to him in repentance. How would that change your view of yourself? that God really does desire to show you mercy, that he really does desire to show you grace, that he really is patient toward you, that he really will relent in his wrath towards you. How might this change your posture and your attitude towards the way you see others? And how could we withhold from others this same mercy that God has poured out to us? So, so two very ch simple challenges as we, we close this up this morning. I'm gonna give us at the same time two challenges. The first challenge for us, see God's mercy toward you. Look once again this morning at the cross. And remember what Jesus did for you. Remember, as we sang earlier, that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Remember the gospel. Remember his mercy toward you. And in that same thread, show his mercy to others. Romans 5.8 reminds us of this. How does God demonstrate his love for us? What did he do? While we were yet sinners. What did Christ do? He died for us. This is God's word. So Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. We are so undeserving. Father, nothing within us that we bring to the table that would merit our salvation, only by the goodness of Jesus do we stand justified before you today. We thank you that your mercy is new with every morning because we need it every single day. And Father, we are in the midst of a broken and dark world, entrenched in violence that needs your mercy. So we beg you again today, Lord, have mercy. 
And in your mercy, will you hear our prayer? As we come uh, to the table this morning for communion, I just encourage you now, um, just enter into the space of confession of sin, repentance, preparing your heart, dealing honestly with the sin that's in your own life so that we could come to the table today in a worthy manner, not taking for granted what it cost God to save us in giving us his son, Jesus. Not treating this lightly, not doing this out of empty rhythm or routine, but to remember that the wrath of God that we deserve for sin was poured out instead on Jesus Christ. And as a free gift received by faith, he calls us to believe and repent and turn to him so that we can stand with him in life. So we just take that moment to just enter into confession, enter into repentance, to lay your sin before the Lord, to deal honestly with your sin. Return to the Lord, Joel said, why? Because he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And if you come to him in repentance, he will turn away his wrath. He's faithful and he's just and he will forgive. So Father, we, we thank you for the display of your mercy and the death of your son. We thank you for the gifts of coming to the table to remember what he's done for us and to celebrate his finished work and to stand in his victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. We rejoice in these things today. Be glorified as we sing. Be glorified as we confess. Be glorified as we repent, as we turn to you. Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.